Hi, I'm Dr. Robin Koslowitz, clinical psychologist, parenting educator, and post-traumatic parent. Welcome to the Post-Traumatic Parenting Podcast, where we learn to provide our children with a healthy childhood, even if ours was anything but. Or maybe we had a wonderful childhood, but recent events in our lives have left us reeling. Let's face it, after 2020, we're all post-traumatic parents now. Welcome. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Post-Traumatic Parenting Podcast. Today, we have a really special guest because so many of you have been asking about self-healing approaches, things you can do between therapy sessions, adjunctive techniques that you can do when, you know, it just feels like there's such a lag between therapy or right now you're not in therapy because you can't access therapy. So I am so excited to bring Dr. Kate Truitt to the podcast. Dr. Truitt is an applied neuroscientist and a clinical psychologist. She has an MBA in healthcare administration and has dedicated her life to advancing the treatment of trauma and stress-related disorders. She leads her flagship clinic, Dr. Kate Truitt and Associates, headquartered in the beautiful old town Pasadena. She is the CEO of the Trauma Counseling Center with offices throughout Los Angeles. Dr. Truitt is an expert in havening. She trains both clinicians and patients and people all over the world in this technique. Havening is a fantastic technique for the post-traumatic parenting community. She's also the author of a brand new book, Healing in Your Hands, which we're going to be talking about today. So excited to be speaking with you. So welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Robin. I'm delighted to be here. We are so excited because so many members of the post-traumatic parenting community have been talking about techniques they can use that are adjunctive to therapy or, you know, when they want to kind of turbocharge their therapy process, especially with post-traumatic parenting, when we come to the realization of how our traumas are impacting our parenting and how much of those instinctive responses we have are trauma responses, not parenting responses, we get really anxious to get better really fast because we have all these, you know, these kids and their, you know, their childhood that's depending on our recovery. And we've been talking so much about what can we do in between therapy so that we can turbocharge our recovery or that we can soothe ourselves in the moment. So I'd love to hear about havening and how that works. And havening is a perfect tool for exactly those reasons you just highlighted. There one of the reasons that Havening is so specifically unique is that it has both a clinical treatment program, and then it also has a series of protocols and tools that we can take into our day-to-day life, like you just highlighted. For those moments where our brain gets hijacked into those experiences from the past, those painful moments that our brain just hasn't had the opportunity or the sense of safety to let go of yet so that we can live in the present moment. And Havening works directly with the part of our brain that encodes and remembers stressful and painful moments, i.e. trauma, and also the part of our brain that plays a critical role in defining how we learn to be who we are in the world, which, of course, if we have experienced trauma in our childhood, that plays a key role in what we call the case for self. Who am I in the world around me? And that can be thrive-informed or trauma-informed. And for those of us who have a trauma-informed case for self, havening is one of my most favorite tools for helping the system move into that thriving state through daily actionable practices that work directly with the neurobiology of our brain. Very, very cool. I love the way you're talking about what we talk about a lot at Post-Traumatic Parenting, which is 
when we're trying to parent, we really want to parent out of that thriving sense of self, right? We don't want to be parenting out of our trauma selves. But of course, when we're hijacked by our amygdala, then we're automatically going to, and we're going to parent out of our triggers. And if anything can trigger us, it's our kids, right? Yes. We care so deeply about them and we're so worried for them. We have so much fear about their outcomes. We our stakes in parenting is so high that it makes so much sense that like we get triggered, even if we've been through therapy and even if we're like, okay, I understand my inner child. I understand my traumas. I get myself. Maybe I'm like, you know, more integrated at work or I'm more integrated with my friends. Somehow with our kids, it snaps right back. I like to think about our amygdala, which is the hub of survival and thrive as having three core values. The number one is, am I safe? Number two, how am I lovable and how do I belong? And the number three is, how do I create success? Which are really three critical core values that we want for our children. And so as you just highlighted, it makes sense that we are so readily triggered in those environments because those core values start coming to the surface, especially if they're still linked into feelings of trauma and survival mode. And so it's a little bit like a hot button that can be really readily pushed. And I think what you also just said there, Robin, that's so important is that whiplash of, wait a minute, I'm really integrated at work. So why is there this raw ember burning at home with the people that I love most intensely in the entire world and how that in of itself can activate a sense of vulnerability or a feeling of being unsteady on one's feet? Right. And there's so much shame involved in that. Right. Because like we value our parenting so much that then when we and we think I think a lot of us think that healing is this very linear process. And like I'm over it. Right. And like it's it's done. I did the whole healing thing, like been there, done that, got the T-shirt, like good yeah. therapy patient. Right. I did it. I got better. And then like we go back, we revert to these earlier states. It's like almost like a scar reopening and bleeding again. And we give ourselves so much shame and blame because we think like, oh, that's not my trauma. Like, I'm over that. It must be something else. Yeah. Well, that's the the power of the prefrontal cortex versus the very real raw engine power of the amygdala. So the amygdala is where the trauma and the stress encode. And that's where the havening actually targets. It's the only therapeutic and self-healing modality that works directly with the amygdala that I've ever come across. And I'm trained in all the acronyms of trauma soup. Right. So it's a really powerful self-healing opportunity for parents because the shame when that percolates, well, we know it can become a spiraling circle of doom. Or we can lean in and go, hey, wait a minute, something just triggered my shame That's now an opportunity because my amygdala has some additional work to do to know we're safe in the present moment. So it's almost like here's the amygdala. It's here now, right? Like that's what you're saying? Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Um, So tell us more about havening and how it works to directly access the amygdala. So the havening relies on a mechanism of action called the havening touch. And mechanism of action is basically something that we're using from an external stimuli to create internal change. And so the touches, there's four of them. The first one is look as though you're washing your hands under warm water, palm under palm. And so if you remember back at the early stages of the pandemic, everybody was washing their hands and singing songs. Well, we are all thrilled in the Havening community because that's actually regulating. And I'll talk about why in a moment. 
The second touch is what I call a havening hug. So crossing your arms across your chest, fingertips on your shoulders, and gently moving down your arms to your elbows and repeating that movement in a very gentle, soothing way. And then the final two movements are across the eyebrows and then circling the eyes or the cheekbones. People can do any of these movements in any order that they like. So for some of us, especially if touch has been weaponized against us, which for trauma survivors is a common phenomena, as we know, palm havening may be the only touch that feels comfortable for as you get started, or perhaps the arm havening, or even if that feels too much, she on your lap or even on a table and just stroke a blanket or hey pet a cat or a puppy those guys what's happening is there's little receptors that link into our sensory systems that help the brain calm down out of a moment of trigger so like a warm warm fuzzy wrapped around the amygdala and then we start giving the brain other jobs. Uh, it can't focus happened in that moment. We had do a different job, such as playing brain games that are super simple, so that our brain can't focus on all the worst case stories of doom tied to the triggers of the path. I love that it's self-touch because I feel like for like you're saying, for a lot of trauma survivors, touch has been weaponized. Our bodies have been weaponized in some ways, ownership of our bodies has, you know, just not happened. And being able to do that by yourself, and I imagine within therapy, having a, you know, having a patient or client do that on their own can feel so empowering because it's my body that I can soothe and I can access self-healing within. Yeah. So when we're utilizing havening, whether in the healing in your hand space or in the clinical space, there's a really powerful opportunity to be in that state of the internal agent for change. Our clients ourselves are the healing opportunity. We're not relying on anybody else, which is such a big part of how trauma encodes and links in. And so we get to have that state of agency and personal empowerment and lean in and say, hey, brain, I've got my own back. And guess right. what? I hold the power in my own hands to create my own healing, whether it be in my day-to-day life or to go deeper into the healing opportunities in clinical care. Yeah, it's like it's this idea that this is my very own body and I get to use it to help myself as opposed to like needing someone else to do that for me. And I imagine for a lot of post-traumatic parents, this would be so helpful in like creating like a calming routine. Let's say right before the kids come home and your amygdala is going danger, danger. The kids are coming home. I'm not safe. I might be triggered. And then you can be like, okay, I can transition using these techniques and create that sense of calm calm the body to calm the mind, they'll come home and it could be a lovely routine right before the children come home, if that's the fear. whole series of different ways to interact or partners or as a parent, integrating that into day-to-day life with kids, utilizing it for co-regulation, as well as ways to safely structure it to create space, you know, push pause in a moment of amygdala engagement and go, wait a minute, I'm going to take some time for myself in a safely structured way. And in many respects, give ourselves back the space that we should have been taught as children or should have had the what should have been but wasn't when we've survived trauma. 
I love what you're saying, the words what should have been but wasn't. I think that's just a key powerful thought because it's the other side of trauma, right? Sometimes trauma isn't the things that happen to you. It's concurrently what didn't happen for you at that time. You know, if your brain is so busy staying alive, it can't be learning a lot of those self-actualization skills that other kids in your class are learning. You can't be learning self-soothing in kindergarten if you're worried that when you get home, you're going to be beaten or there's not going to be enough food. So you're not learning what the other kids are learning, even if you're in the same educational experiences. And this is that way of restoring something that you were never given and it's sad. And maybe that's something we have to process in therapy or we have to journal about, right? We have to, you know, talk to our inner child and talk about how sad we are that that didn't happen for you. But now it can. Yeah, exactly. Well, and all of that's integrated into the book because I I don't know about you, Robin, but I'm a 1980s baby. Mm -hmm. Emotional intelligence and social emotional learning was not a part of my educational curriculum, even if I wasn't going home to a complicated environment. So those were simply not tools that my young self ever learned or had access to. And as adults, we get to go back and take care of our young selves. And the Havening Touch creates a permissive environment to go neurobiologically deeper into that relationship so that our brain and our body system can have that what should have been but wasn't opportunity. I think we both have this in common that we're both trauma survivors And I think that we both probably went into that field. You know, all research is me-search. And I think we both went into that trauma psychology field because it's like, how do I make this healing happen for me, right? Physician heal thyself. And I think for me, yeah, there was so little. I am a survivor of PTSD in childhood. And there's so little information about that growing up. I remember coming back to school, like, you know, a week or two after my father died and being told like, well, you've lost enough time. I'm sure you want to get right back into it with not a lot of acknowledgement that like, well, yeah, I care about my grades, but, um, you know, hi, there's this giant invisible backpack I'm carrying now. Yeah. There's just such what happens with grief and loss and how the brain makes sense of it. And we know the amygdala is playing a really, really critical role in navigating all of those types of experiences. And when our amygdala doesn't know what to do, especially as a child, and if we feel unexpected pressures or like we don't have the support we need, well, Amy, that's what we call, I call Amy the amygdala, Amy. Okay. She's going to find other ways to keep us safe. And that takes us into the classic four Fs of trauma or those two Ds, fight, flight, freeze, fawn dissociation, defensive rage, because those are strategies that work. And our brain loves things that work. And so the double whammy of childhood trauma is that our brain learns, wait, I feel better when I do this. And that follows us into adulthood. And that's another, that's one of those super freeways that our brain builds that says stress. How do I feel better? Dissociate, use substances, what, you know, self-injure, whatever it is. Even at, if 2023 us is going, wait a minute, I know that's not ultimately the best thing, right. but those urges or those old patterns are so strong, which then again can trigger us right back into the shame spiral and derail our brain. Right. I think what we what you're calling, Amy, we call professor trauma and this idea, again, that like mm-hmm. trauma teaches us these lessons and they're very effective, but they also in some ways, a lie. Like, yes, dissociation will work. You will feel better if you dissociate. You will not feel your pain. But then dissociation is not effective as a parent because you can't dissociate and be present for children, right? You People-pleasing is fantastic. You're going to fawn all day, and that works great when your boss, you know, is not going to criticize you and you'll feel safe. 
But then again, you're coming home late to your kids and then you're not, you know, you're saying no to a value that you hold dear. So Professor Trauma does that. Professor Trauma will, you know, and like what you're saying, Amy will do that. It will protect us, but at a cost. And we're not willing to pay that cost anymore as parents. Exactly. It will get very real very fast. And there's so many biological pulls for why that happens. You know, that deep connection with another entity. For, and for many of us, for the first time in that way, and the responsibility of, oh, this is a part of me, an extension of me. Right. It's a really powerful, powerful motivator and also can be slightly terrifying. Yeah, it's not me. It's my amygdala, right? And uh-huh. it's my very own amygdala that I get to reset. And if I don't like the way my amygdala is doing things, I can teach it to do things differently. Mm-hmm. I remember the first time I've spoken about this on the podcast in the past, The first time one of my children asked me where I go when I dissociate, and I had thought that I was hiding my dissociation from my kids completely. And he's like, sometimes like you're not there, like you're in the kitchen. He was about eight years old. You're in the kitchen. You're doing things. You're with us. But like, you're not there. Where do you go? And I realized I need to get a hold on my dissociation because this is not a technique I can use anymore because it Mm -hmm. unnerves my children. Until then, I thought, this is brilliant. Whenever I'm stressed out, I can go into this dissociative state and I can be perfectly calm and I can make like these really rational decisions and I don't have to process things. And it's fantastic. Like, why wouldn't I want to do that? Until I realized how unnerving it was and how it interfered with being present as a parent. And then I said, oh, I actually need to get a handle on this. Yeah, it's one of those moments that can be so deeply impactful, that self-awareness of, oh, wait a minute. This is much bigger than me. Yeah. And that, that is one of the reasons why the healing in your hands tools are so powerful because in that type of moment, there's an opportunity to pick up a guidebook and say, okay, what was happening? What are some tools I can start using immediately that are simple and concrete and neurobiologically based to decrease the likelihood that that will happen again? And that is one of the reasons I, I do love the healing work so much is it's not just trying to change the way we're thinking about the world. It's actually proactively delinking whatever the triggers are or whatever is the current survival state. Because in the four Fs or the two Ds, our amygdala is playing a really critical role in designing our experience of the moment, which means she's working really hard, especially one of my favorite tools, CPR for the amygdala, which is creating personal resilience for the amygdala is a great way to wrap that fuzzy blanket around Amy and say, hey, go take a, take a nap, kiddo. Yeah. There's no threat here. And we can actually be present in this moment. And while we're utilizing that protocol, we are actually neurobiologically delinking whatever caused our brain to go into that state to begin with, or the likelihood that our brain's going to speed away onto that future freeway again. So we're like, really cool. We're like actively managing our triggers. It's like we can reprogram them. It's not like these are my triggers and they're going to be my triggers forever. It's like these are Mm -hmm. my triggers and I can actively learn to unlink them. Maybe not perfectly and maybe not immediately, but as I keep practicing this, it will unlink gradually. Um, My TikTok channel, I take questions and everybody and I do a video a day responding to one of the is wait a minute you talk to that my therapist said I'll never actually can work with a part of the brain that encodes and then guides our brain after a moment of trauma 
then we can truly recover. And I love that you highlighted it does take time. It takes intentional attention to being self-compassionate and loving and kind and leaning in to these new options that neuroscience is bringing forward and havening techniques being one of them. So on your TikTok, when people are asking questions about havening and are you getting a lot of those myths where therapists are saying you will never be over your triggers or, um, yeah, this is just you, your brain is broken forever, learn to cope with it. And you're saying that's a myth. It's a myth. Yeah, that comes up quite a bit. The other one that comes up is my therapist tells me I have to tell the story in order to get better. And that doesn't feel safe to me. How do I do that? Or more, even more often than that, I can't tell the story because I don't have childhood memories. Right. How can I ever get better? Right. That's the other myth. You don't have to tell the trauma story. In fact, telling the trauma story with in a situation that is not trauma-informed without the proper resources and sense of safety can be re-traumatizing in of itself. And I see that happen a lot, and it's even happened to me. Yes. And we can do so much healing, as Dr. Bessel van der Kolk reminds us, the body keeps the score. And because the amygdala is the hub of all this, the amygdala only speaks the five senses. She's not back there creating a story about what happened. She's noticing what we're smelling, seeing, hearing, tasting, and touching. And that we can work with electrochemically. That's why even DR works. That's why tapping creates change. And that's also why the havening touch is so powerful. They're electrochemical, not cognitive. We can't talk our way out of trauma, but we can heal our way out of trauma. In some ways, talking our way out of trauma, and like I agree with you, without having some sort of a reprocessing and physical component to it, just reinforces that sort of intellectualizing defense where we're talking heads and we're just like, uh, this is my story. These are my triggers. This is who I am without ever saying, okay, but this is not who I want to be forever, Yeah, where I want to retain some of this. Like there are some aspects of my trauma that I do want to retain. I do want to retain. I certainly have a strong sense of value around relationships and around parenting that is directly related to my trauma. I don't want to lose that, right? But I do want to lose that reactivity and I definitely want to get a handle on dissociation. And I think just telling my story will lead to even more dissociation because that's what telling your story in a cognitive way does. It's completely dissociated from your body. Yeah. Exactly. Our body and our brain, especially for trauma survivors, don't really have a great communication pathway. And in the Western world, kind of in general, where a lot of us are taught to move out of our body and only be in our heads and in our brains. And we know that if the body is carrying the trauma, we have to start to have a healthy relationship with it because emotions are really useful. And I, I'm sure you'd agree with me. There's a reason why we talk about social emotional learning for children. Emotions are very, very important. Somebody's behavior for when we're feeling safe and comfortable with somebody. We want to have all of the gradients of the emotional world. But in trauma, all emotions can start to feel bad and scary. And I, people will tell me all the time, why do you call bad an emotion? Well, because my patients that's probably one of the most frequent words that they use is bad in terms of their emotional world. Yes, because it's very hard not, I think, because the primitive part of our brain is very into labeling things as bad or good, on or off, yuck and yum. We just categorize things that way. It's it's instinctive because that's what a two-year-old will do, right? A two-year-old will put something in his mouth and it'll either be yuck or yum, Mm -hmm. and that's it. 
there isn't really a ton of gradations after that, right? And I think our brains do that. This is a bad emotion. I don't like this. I want it to end. The fact that it's a useful emotion, like fear in the face of actual danger is a very useful emotion, doesn't feel very good, though. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. And that's where the healing opportunity is. But if our brain has learned, I love how you just said that, the categories of good and bad, yuck and yum, then when we feel anything that feels remotely bad, our brain goes, oh, okay, where's my defense mechanism here? What's my strategy for survival? And creating the spaciousness amongst all of the different emotional experiences, what we call the emotions thermometer, the idea that, wait a minute, things happen in gradients and how connected am I to the present moment as my emotional activation is starting to go up is a whole other opportunity for teaching the brain to go, oh, I can feel uncomfortable and still move forward in my day and also maybe use that discomfort as an opportunity to do something different, which is why emotions exist to begin with. Do something. That's the purpose. Right. For trauma survivors, as you said, it's black and white. It feels very black and white. I think that, you know, one of the things you're saying about how the body keeps the score, right? I feel like for parenting, a lot of times the body also calls the shots and that becomes a problem, right? Because our kid is doing something that triggers us. We go right into that like rage response or that like, you know, instinctive, strong emotional response. And we really have that opportunity to train our brain, like you're saying, to train Amy to say, wait a minute, this is not actually threatening. I'm feeling anger. I don't have to act on it. I can do something else instead. I have that option because it's like my very own amygdala and I get to do what I want with it. Yeah. Yeah. And the amygdala calls the shots. I mean, and to give you a sense of how fast this is, I'll invite you and your listeners, just blink your eyes one time when I blink four times faster than your brain registering my request for you to blink your eyes, your amygdala was already tuning in and guiding your emotional, physical body response to that request. Four times faster. The actual eye blink is how long it takes for the brain to start processing and executing information. So the amygdala is four times faster than the blink of an eye. It's four times faster than the thinking brain. And then we, you know, shame ourselves when, you know, our child does something that triggers us and where we instinctively respond. And there's a part of us that goes, no, 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 I didn't want to do that. But Mm -hmm. I mean, we can't be faster than that, right? Yeah, exactly. And the tool that I use with myself and also with my patients is a little bit of a counterintuitive twist on that. After one of those moments has happened, turning inward to the amygdala and going, high five, Amy, you are working really hard to keep me safe in that moment. You thought there was a threat. Now let's get curious about what you thought was threatening and do some additional healing work to help the system move through it and release it. Curiosity allows for introspection and learning and then also creates space for compassion rather than shame spiraling when the brain's only trying to keep us alive. I'm being so frustrated with ourselves. Yeah, I feel like we we just become so frustrated with ourselves. I think that I know for myself, Mm -hmm. before I really got a handle on dissociation, I was in an experience that was really happy for me. It was something like one of my children was getting an award. It was a graduation and it was just super exciting. And I found myself becoming extremely dissociated. And I remember talking back to my brain and saying like, oh, strong emotion, 
So you're trying to protect me from it. It's actually joy. But inherent in joy is fear of loss, right? Like, I love this child. I'm proud of this child, which means I could lose this child and that will hurt. And that's what you're trying to protect me from. But it's okay. I got this. Like, I want to experience this experience fully with all of myself, which means I don't want to be dissociating right now. Now, had I known havening then, I think that would have been more helpful because I was trying to think my way out of it. But at least having that clarity of, of course, I'm dissociated. My brain is trying to spare me from an intense emotional experience, even a good one. Well, and that's where I think havening is also such a great tool is we can use havening with all of our top-down tools and techniques and modalities. It's not a replacement for anything. It's a bolt-on because it's working with the amygdala. And I think one of the most powerful things is this recognition of, hey, wait a minute, I can know so much and still have these very human moments. And there might be moments where I know all the tools that I should be doing and I'm not doing them because my Amy is so scared in that moment that I don't have access to my thinking brain. And I know I lived with my adult life PTSD with five years after a traumatic loss. And I was already a psychologist and a neuroscientist. I've been you know, becoming an expert in studying applied neuropsychology as it pertains to trauma and stress responses. And I knew all the things. And I was like, my amygdala is still way more powerful than all of those degrees. Right. And all of those years of study and research, because my amygdala is freaking out right now about everything, especially to what you just said. I love this entity, this person, this creature, this child. And that means I could lose them. Right. Oh, and that's that is for the so scary. Trauma response. Yeah. Right. And then we just frustrate ourselves so much when we try to power mm-hmm. through it. Or like you're saying, I also PhD in clinical psychology. I treat trauma all the time. I know my PTSD well. Right. And yet it doesn't mean I can <laughs> right. think my way out of it because especially exactly. children will do that. Right. Because they're going to hit on every single hot button emotion we have. They're going to hit on every single instinct we have. We're always going to be focused on doing it optimally, not just well, right? So children are going to really hit every single one of those things, no matter how Mm -hmm. smart we are, no matter how motivated we are, how much we know, doesn't matter because what we know doesn't really do all that much in the world. It's a nice thing, (laughs) but it's, you know, not really what helps us in the moment of like that amygdala activation. Yeah. Exactly. Well, I'm going back to what you were sharing earlier about that idea. If I've done the therapy, I've processed the trauma, signed the papers, moved on, checked all the boxes, that's where it can be so confounding and so shaming when a trauma, I call them sleeper cell grenades of trauma in the brain, when one of those randomly pops up unexpectedly. And the recognition of, oh, okay, my amygdala still has some additional threats that she's letting me know she thinks are around. Let's do some work with that versus I thought I was better and now I'm back into the desperation and the darkness. That space is so helpful because trauma does cast a wide net, especially childhood trauma, but any trauma does. And our brain tags anything related to a stressful enough or traumatic experience as being possibly threatening. In many respects, it's just going, I have one primary directive keep you alive. And so I'm going to prioritize anything that reminds me even remotely, possibly of something that could hurt me or those that I love. 
Yes. And it's so, this is exactly why we're counterproductive over and over again. You know, Mm -hmm. I always use that analogy of like, you know, I say like, I'm really in the mood of chocolate cake. So I start like, you know, peeling potatoes and, you know, boiling them. And then I keep getting potato salad and I'm like, but I really want a chocolate cake. And the reason that happens is as soon as I get activated, I go to those old patterns. I'm going to have to because my amygdala is going to lead me there. And as much as I might say, so like to give an example, in the post-traumatic parenting class, I was talking to a mom who was a people pleaser her whole life. It was a great way of her to cope with a very kind of critical, overbearing stepfather and a very shaming mom. So She became a real people pleaser, which worked. But then when she had kids, she would be this people pleaser at work. So the boss would be like, who can stay late and who can whatever? And she would say me. But then she comes home and she had promised her kids that she'd be home early that day. Why do I keep doing this? Well, your amygdala is telling you that if you say no, that's really dangerous and scary. And until you're aware of that, it's not going to change. Because in that moment when you do say no, that's another thing I think that a lot of people aren't prepared for. When you try that new tool, so you do say no, it's going to feel so threatening. You're going to be terrified. Mm-hmm. And you're going to almost regret it and not want to do it, right? Because you're not going to want to stay in that discomfort unless you have some way of relating to it and saying, wait a minute, I'm yeah. doing something different or now. It's going to hurt. It. Yeah. Right. Some way uh, that, that's where that warm, fuzzy blanket around the amygdala is so critical. And one of the other pieces that I love so much about havening is it's not just about healing or reducing activation. It's actively utilizing neuroplasticity, the brain's ability to ch- change and also develop new links intentionally across the course of our lives. And so there's an entire suite of resilience and personal empowerment focus protocols that we use to help the brain have more of what we want. Because when we're living in a world of trauma, our brain prioritizes the threat stuff. That's that negativity bias. But our brain's also being exposed to a whole bunch of positive stimuli around us. It just kind of is a tiny, tiny blip on the radar. And so when we can start to harness the brain's capacity to link into little micro moments of positivity and then enhance those with the resilience focus protocols, we can train our brain to pay attention to new things without even in some cases, and I see this with some of my clients, having to go back and unpack all of the hard things in the past. Right. We can say, wait a minute, let's go in the direction we want with intention. And if we hit roadblocks along the way, well, we've got tools to help the brain go through those roadblocks, but we're going to really prioritize personal empowerment, agency, building the brain that we want to have so we can be our best selves in any moment. I love that. I think one of the things that people misunderstand a lot about neuroplasticity is that it's mostly bad news, meaning that if you don't take active control of your neuroplasticity, it's going to work against you. So like when people read articles, they say, oh, our brains are neuroplastic. Isn't that great? Really? No, <laughs> especially for trauma. Brains, yeah. The fact that our brains are neuroplastic is bad, bad news, because that means that our brains will hold on to the bad. And that means that we will be mm-hmm. triggered. And that means that we will have PTSD. That is literally why we have PTSD, because our brains are neuroplastic. If we want neuroplasticity to work with us, that's an active commitment. That's yes. actively saying, I'm going to do this. And I think that's why your book is so helpful, because for a lot of people, it's very confusing, I find, in the post-traumatic parenting community. It's very hard for a layperson to understand all the different forms of psychotherapy and what their mechanisms of change are. And sometimes people will say, like, well, I've been in therapy for this and this amount of years, 
And I'm, mm-hmm. but this part of me isn't better. And it's very hard as a lead person to be like, well, you were in cognitive behavioral therapy and that's great for your panic attacks, but it's not addressing your trauma triggers in the way that you wanted it to. Or, you know, IFS really helped you re-understand your relationship with your family and with some of your own internal voices but you did need something somatic to help you with your trauma. And lay people don't always understand that. Not all therapy is the same thing. And some therapies are great at one thing, and they're fabulous at that one thing, but they're not great at something else. Um, It's not even the therapist's fault. It's not the therapy approach's fault. It's just that you're a much more complex and multifaceted human than any one therapeutic approach. Exactly. Exactly. Which is why havening is a bolt-on for all the things. Because if you have a brain, you've got an amygdala. And the amygdala has been walking around this fair planet of ours for over 300 million years. Prefrontal cortex started evolving around, you know, three to five mil, depending on who you ask. And really our kind of human evolution parts and people say didn't start evolving until about 70,000 years ago. So the amygdala is old guard. And that's where when we bring in these neuroscience based tools, we can enhance all of the other work. And it's not that all the rest of it failed. The way we like to think about it is, yeah, you've been doing this amazing CBT work and you've been preloading your prefrontal cortex. Now let's go help Amy feel a little bit better, get some of that primal stuff out of the way, that old stuff, so that all of that work you've been doing can really show up and just be this, the speedway towards your recovery that you're looking for. And all when- that's there. Right. And when you wrote the book, did you write it primarily with professionals in mind or did you write it primarily with the layperson in mind? It was blessed, Pessy. They're so great. I love working with them. So it was supposed to be a little bit more of a clinical manual. And they were very gracious in working with me to make it a accessible manual for the layperson. Early readers were people who were not in the mental health community. I feel like that's actually great for clinicians as well, because I think clinicians sometimes need to read a book that's primarily for lay people, because it's something about explaining it in a way that a lay person can understand. That means you really understand it. You mm-hmm. know, when I used to teach research methodology, I used to always say to my students, tell it to me as though you were explaining it to a really smart grandma who has a lot of life experience, but knows nothing about your field of yeah. research. If you can do that, <laughs> great. Yep, exactly. I've had a number of young adult teen readers read it and come back to me and say, I have never understood my brain this way. I've also had a number of individuals, I mean, across every spectrum of age in the world and so many different professional careers, interior designers, engineers, teachers who've come to me and said the same thing. And it's easily applicable to one's own life. And also part of how I wrote it, Robin, was so that people can take these tools and start teaching them to the people in their lives. We all need a little extra healing in our hands. And we know that while we wish therapy was a right, therapy is a privilege. And so one of my major mission and visions in my world and everything that I do with all of my organizations is how do we break barriers to access? Well, we do it with the YouTube channel, we do it with the TikTok, and we do it with the content that we put out, including this book. Put healing in people's hands. Our brains yes. and our bodies are so powerful. 
I feel like the implications for parenting and co-regulation are so strong, like saying to a four-year-old, like, we're both activated now, so let's both self-calm. And I'm sure you have all sorts of, like, cute ways of teaching it to kids and cute acronyms (laughs) for children where we can do this together and we can co-regulate and feel calm together or even for teachers to do in, like, a classroom. Like, let's all, we're all activated. Let's, you know, calm ourselves you know, I remember instinctively as a teacher doing that, like having my class just like do jumping jacks and then do deep breathing, just like walking into a class and like, we are all so glum and so stressed out about whatever is happening next. So wait a minute, let's take a break, make our bodies feel better so that our minds can be smarter and move on. That was just me as like a student teacher, just instinctively <laughs> saying, that. these kids need to move. <laughs> like, this right. is not good. My lesson is not going to work right now. Mm-hmm. Right. And I feel like what I love about the way you're like democratizing it, I guess, and making it accessible to lay people and clinician alike is this, you know, this, the power of as a lay person, even if this is not the kind of therapy you're in, even if you're not accessing therapy right now, you're taking a break. This is something that you can learn how to do and it can be an adjunct. And when you go back into therapy, sure, it'll be there. When you, you know, you can tell your therapist, this is something you're trying since it's not tied to any like basic theoretical field, it's an adjunct to everything. Exactly. And that's how it's designed and giving that one of my favorite things. I mean, I do it every day is starting my day, waking up because our amygdala doesn't sleep and I'm not a great sleeper. And so inevitably I wake up during the middle of the night, either nervous about something or because I've had a bad dream. And then my brain starts going, oh gosh, what's going to happen tomorrow? I'm going to be sleep deprived. I'm not going to be blah, 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 blah. And we start hitting all the stress points that Amy loves And then waking up in the morning and just being able to do that warm, fuzzy blanket of that CPR for the amygdala protocol, and then start creating possibilities, which is one of our resilience protocols of how do I want to feel today? What is the intentional attention? As you said, our brain neuroplasticity, it will pick the bad things. So if we take two to five minutes in the morning and say, let's calm the amygdala down and then choose with intention where we want to go with our neuroplasticity. And then build that in, get our brain moving in that direction. We're lighting up those neurons and our brain will have them more accessible throughout the course of the day. So we can keep circling back to and build the freeway in the positive way of whatever we want more of, whether it be strength or calm or confidence, you know, so many different feeling states, we can build that. I love how empowering that is right? That we're not just stuck. And I think it's true. Like you're saying about your TikTok, people asking about like, am I stuck in my PTSD forever? Right? This idea that like, no. And I just keep going back to it's our very own body and we get to decide how we're going to use it because it is, it's such a powerful tool to be able to say, wait a minute, my body is creating those bad sensations. Like we said, those yuck sensations. And my body can also be the source of yum sensations. I get to do that. Not always do I get to do that quickly enough to stop myself from being triggered. But if I keep practicing that, if I build that into my day, eventually, I certainly remember for myself, the first time I was extremely triggered by something, my kids were fighting and I just had this very strong shame spiral about it. And I remember that first time that I was like, oh, I'm triggered and I'm not going to dissociate and I'm not going to snap. And I know what I can do. And I remain present And like, no one saw it but me, but that sense of victory of like, I didn't associate, I didn't snap at them, I calmly co-regulated, I redirected them and myself, 
I was able to do that. And I wasn't using havening at the time because it's not something I knew, but I instinctively was using body movement, right? I instinctively was like, I need to move my body in a way that makes me feel safe and then I'll be able to do it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And those little victories, when they happen in our internal world and we celebrate them, that's grittiness. That's the growth mindset. That's building that internal agency of, wait, I've got this. I can shine my own light on me and be proud of me, which is such an important part of a recovery journey. Those personal high fives. Yes. And for those of us who are post-traumatic parents who didn't get a lot of that growing up because maybe our childhood wasn't like that, or, you know, sometimes parents are doing the best they can with the tools they have. And they're just not, like you said, you were a child of the eighties. I was a child of the late seventies, right? There wasn't a lot of, you know, there wasn't a lot of knowledge about emotional intelligence about, I think Mr. Rogers was like the only voice who started talking about emotions, right? And how they're real and how it's okay to have them. And we just didn't have the vocabulary or the tools for that. Doesn't mean parents were necessarily bad. Some of us had childhoods with very well-intentioned parents, but we still didn't get a lot of education in that. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And so finding those moments within ourselves of saying, wait a minute, I need to push pause. And then there's even a tool in the book that's literally called the push pause tool, a description and explanation of how you can start to bring this into your relationships with your children, into your relationships with your partner, and how to start creating space in those moments for that co-regulation to happen, or for both partners or both individuals to safely say, I need to push a pause. It's not personal to you, because that's a big part of when we feel flooded and overwhelmed, then we might walk away or might feel like we're trapped in a situation. If there's a safe way to share with somebody else in that interaction, hey, I need to push pause and everybody knows what that means. That in of itself is giving the brain and the body what should have been, but wasn't the safe capacity to create safety for whatever mind and body need in that moment so that we don't go to the dissociation and we don't go to the defensive rage or the other coping skills. And it's such an intentional practice as opposed to dissociating, which feels similar, right? Either way, I'm taking a pause. But it's so intentional, right? Like, I'm going to walk away from this for a moment to reset. And I think I love the implication of that for parenting, because to be able to say to a teenager in the middle of some fight or some argument that's starting to spiral, I'm going to press pause because I want to talk to you out of like a wise mind. I want to talk to you with my full self. I don't want to talk to you from a place of reactivity. So I'm going to press pause on this conversation. I'll come back to it. I think that's modeling something amazing for the child and for ourselves. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, our parents are the surrogates for our nervous systems. And as parents, we are the surrogates for our children's nervous systems. And what we're also modeling is, hey, it's okay to have big feelings. That's normal and human. And it's also okay to recognize when the feelings are getting so big that we need a moment so that we can come back and be, as you said, in our wise mind and that permission giving. I love it. I also love the way that you're talking about the book. It sounds like you can pick and choose exercises. If you're not ready for the whole book or everything, you can pick and choose or people can find you on TikTok and can pick and choose, you know, they'll watch a video that really resonates with them and they'll use that without incorporating everything. If everything seems too big, too theoretical, too like, I can't read this whole book. It sounds like you can pick like an exercise and start with that. Like there's a lot of multiple entry points in. Exactly. And it's the book is written, each chapter is specific to something related to stress or trauma. So there's a chapter on emotions, interpersonal relationships, relationship with self, thoughts, childhood trauma, behaviors that we wish didn't exist in our lives, 
and people can pick up the book at any inception point and move forward. The neuroscience starts in chapter one, and it's not even that heavy of neuroscience. Like I was saying, it is for the lay person, but that lays that framework in chapter one. And then from there, just pick and choose. And that was very much by design because I know parents, professionals, humans are busy. A lot of people don't have the opportunity to sit down and go through an entire book. But if you can pick it up and go, okay, I've got a shame spiral going on. Where do I go? Ah, compassion chapter or emotions chapter? Ah, they both have some great tools. Let's do that one. Done. Right. Start feeling better immediately. And then it doesn't feel like this huge burden of like, I have to read this whole book and learn this whole technique. I'm wondering what clinicians say to you about like when you do havening trainings for clinicians, do they find that this is the missing piece? Do they find it maps on to all of their different theoretical disciplines? Yeah, great question. Clinicians love it. <laughs> One of my favorite comments in our last training was somebody came back and they're like, this was some voodoo and fill in the blank. <laughs> yeah. Because um, they're just coming back and into after a breakout group and being like, this is what's been missing. And it's very, very simple, whether it be the healing in your hands protocols or the treatment protocols. They're quite straightforward and simple because we're working with these primal brain parts. And one of the big things that we really focus on is our amygdala is four times faster. Again, I don't know any other therapeutic processes that are working that rapidly. And so this is a great get stuff out of the way tool so that the other protocols, the other, you know, IFS, EMDR, CBT, we can go through all, all the things are more powerful and better able to do the job that they're designed to do. It also sounds like you have that emergency break. And I find, I know like you and I both are, you know, run group practices and I have, you know, a lot of associates. And one of the things I find interesting in mentoring like newer mental health professionals is sometimes they're afraid to ask that question or bring up that hot button topic because they're worried that they don't have an emergency break just in case it's too triggering and it feels too unsafe and they're a little reluctant to go there. And I think that once you've learned havening, so you have in your back pocket this emergency break so that you know that you can first teach someone an emergency break so that they can regulate again. And then it's okay to go there because it feels safe. Yeah, exactly. We use it in our own team meetings. And yeah, I teach it to a lot of leaders in different fields who bring it to their colleagues and their associates. So everybody's got an emergency break. Push, pause, regulate before proceeding with whatever is at hand. Same way we use it at home. I love the way you describe that, Robin. It's spot on. It's an emergency break that says, hey, brain, ooh, okay, there's some stuff happening and let's take some proactive steps to get back into this moment. So like you said, with your students, their brains are being their best selves for themselves and everybody else. Right. And it makes so much sense. I feel like this has been one of the you know, one of the challenges in being a supervisor is getting a beginning clinician to go there. And I'm just thinking that, you know, as we're talking, I'm thinking this is that missing piece for a clinician to know you have something. Uh You can restore a sense of safety. So therefore, it's okay to go there. I think that's just a very useful aspect, especially for clinicians. Yeah, especially if anybody's Having a client is expressing suicidal considerations or self-harming issues where there's can be such an internal state of concern and worry. It's not like, hey, wait a minute. That's all amygdala driven. 
And we've got some really wonderfully supportive tools to help the amygdala calm down. If somebody's having suicidal considerations, it's because their amygdala is so overwhelmed. That's the only way out of the pain. Oh, hey, havening literally means haven, safe place, electrochemically to put the brain into a safe place. Let's use that in those moments and co-regulate. Let's calm the systems down so that we can have the important conversations that we need to have. We work with a lot of teachers, a lot of schools, nurses, medical professionals, so many people who are in service of others and provide these tools as an easily accessible, non-therapeutic option in those types of crisis moments so that the system can be regulated and, and we feel safe as the people who are in service of others, knowing that we have, as you just said, the tools in our back pocket. It's so excellent. I just, I loved everything about this conversation. Where can the members of the post-traumatic parenting community find you online? Yeah. So we have a YouTube channel. I would put out two videos every week. One's a psychoeducational video and one's a guided therapeutic exercise. And that's um, at Dr. Kate Truitt. The TikTok channel is also at Dr. Kate Truitt. IG is at Dr. Kate Truitt. So basically, if you plug in my name, you'll, you'll get a whole bunch of stuff. The purpose of all of those channels is people send us requests for the type of data that they want, or my team comes to me and says, hey, I have a patient who's really struggling with this. Can you do an educational video on it? And so it's all shareware. And then we also have a, a training institute where we do global courses and teach everything from the healing in your hands tools to all the way up to our traditional, more formalized clinical trainings. And so that website is currently vivaexcellence.com. It's being rebranded to Truett Institute. And then my clinical team's website is drtruett.com. So pretty streamlined in terms of access. If you just plug in Kate Truett, you'll land on one of those spaces and can find your way to the others. It's amazing how accessible you've made both the theories around havening, how to do it, and then how accessible you're making yourself so that people can be educated. That's really a community service. And I'm sure it's coming out of making a mission out of your trauma, right? Like we yes. very often talk at post-traumatic parenting about how the final stage of healing from trauma is integrating it into a mission in life. And it sounds like that's exactly what you're doing. Exactly. I wish I'd had the knowledge and the tools as a child, an adolescent, a teen, even a young 20, something that I have now. And I feel like it's a privilege to have these tools. And so a huge part of my purpose is to share that privilege with the world in any way possible. Thank you so much for joining us today, Kate. I feel like this Thank episode you. is going to be endlessly helpful to the post-traumatic parenting community. And I cannot wait to hear everybody's reactions and questions once it's up. Thank you, Rob. It's truly a joy and an honor to be invited into the space with you and your wonderful community. Thank you for the incredible healing work you are bringing forward into this world. Thank you. And thank you. I cannot wait to, we're going to have a giveaway of the book and I cannot wait to, you know, do all of those things. It's going to be really fun. Thanks so much. Thank you. I'm here on social media to be descriptive, not prescriptive. I'm here to educate, inform, and hopefully entertain, but never to treat. If listening to this podcast helps you realize that you need therapy, I am all for that. But podcasts aren't therapy. Please reach out to a mental health professional licensed in your jurisdiction. You'll be glad you did. Wish post-traumatic parenting was a talk show, not a podcast? You have a question for me or for my guests? Great news. You can ask those questions by following me on Instagram. My handle is at Dr. Kozlowitz Psychology. It's also in the show notes. 
I love it when people reach out, DM, or post a question. Who knows, your question might spark an entire episode. Come join our community. We get it. We're post-traumatic parents too. Can't wait to hear from you.